rest of us. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the very opening pages of Scripture in Genesis 1. I want to begin this morning by maybe just a quick overview or reminder from last week as we began or engaged upon a, a, a somewhat of a summer series that's going to take us to the end of July. We've called this series The Kingdom of God. And last week, as in the way of introduction, we looked at Matthew 6.33, fairly familiar verse of scripture to many people. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And just as a reminder, a quick reminder, what we looked at last week, again by way of introduction, is that the kingdom of God is a present reality and has always been, in some sense, a very present reality. Because from the very beginning of creation, when God engaged upon his great work in this world, God has reigned supreme over his creation. That's never ceased. In that sense, the kingdom has always been a present reality. However, ever since the fall and sin's entrance into the world, our present experience of God's kingdom has been somewhat maybe elusive. Maybe not, maybe not as, as easily grasped as you and I might like for it to be. But nevertheless, God remains, has remained, and will always remain sovereign over all things. The second thing we looked at was that the kingdom of God is our primary pursuit. It is the kingdom of God that God's people are to make our greatest passion, our, our greatest pursuit in our lives. Nothing else. Uh, uh, it's not to be a side deal, something we attach along to our pursuits, but it's it itself. And Christ as its king is to be our primary pursuit in everything that we do. We exist. Those of us who claim the name of Christ to be Christians, to be born again, we exist to reveal and to magnify God's kingdom even while it is not a comprehensive experience in this current fallen world. And as his people, we are to live under the reign of God's kingdom. He is our Lord of lords. He is our King of kings. Not sometime in the future, but right now. He is King. That is presently the primary purpose, the primary pursuit of the church. And we are the church. And thirdly, we, we saw that the kingdom of God is our perfect provision. Because regardless of what we think we might want or think we might need in this life to to sustain us in these moments, our greatest need is Christ and His kingdom come. Whether we understand that, whether we feel that or not, that is our greatest need, par none. Everything that you need, everything, or excuse me, everything that you experience here and now, everything that I experience is somewhat a distraction often from this greatest need. If we d desire to experience real life to the fullest, beyond what we can even grasp or comprehend, then that will be accomplished. That will be experienced in the pursuit of God's kingdom because it is God's kingdom that can bring us ultimate satisfaction. And that is what we all ultimately desire. 
Everything that's within us that, that, that wells up within us to pursue something, to pursue things, that is the overflow of our design. Unfortunately, we pursue to, that fulfillment in every other, thing, every other thing other than that which will bring us that fulfillment, and that is pursuit of this kingdom. And so we are to pursue the kingdom rather than temporal things that we think we need. Even those things that we know we need. Food, clothes, shelter, which was the context of Matthew 6. We are to first pursue the kingdom of God. And those things will be added. They will be provided. We are not to pursue food, clothing, shelter, and those things. And then as those things are met, we then pursue God's kingdom and God's glory, which is what we so often do, but rather God's kingdom first. And he will provide everything necessary for real life. Now, while the concept of the kingdom of God might be somewhat elusive, it's that term we talked about last week that it's kind of hard to, to wrap your hands around, your mind around, and, and, and easily understand. Uh, in the context in which we live, that is, because of fallenness, it is real. This kingdom that has been declared throughout the pages of Scripture, it is real. It, it, is, it is something that, is, that we need. It is that which we truly want. But the world full of sin that we presently reside in makes our perspective of the kingdom of God difficult for us to grasp. And in some cases, we, we struggle even to gain a, just a general perspective of, of what the Bible reveals to be the kingdom of God. But know this. The scripture that God has graciously left to us reveals God's kingdom from beginning to end. And this revelation is clear in the beginning. As we begin to engage upon or embark upon the reading of the, the, the word that God has left us, God's kingdom is clearly revealed. But what we need to understand is that after the entrance of sin in the fall, while that kingdom was still there, it begins to be, be unveiled or unpacked throughout the pages of scripture, scripture in a progressive sense or what we call progressive revelation. That is, until it has its greatest expression, its greatest revelation in the very person of Jesus Christ himself, who, who was one who declared that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. But because we have been granted this, the mind of Christ, as Paul reminds us, we have the mind of Christ because uh, of the spirit of God within us, we can now see with greater clarity as we read back over the scriptures uh, we can see with greater clarity the expression of God's kingdom throughout the word of God. Uh, more clearly than those who are walking the path in the moment that we are reading about. We can see it more clearly because of the spirit of God. And tracing this great revelation can help, can serve to help us gain a better perspective of what it means to live in light of the kingdom of God today. Which is what we need to know. It's what we need to understand, right? How are we to live in light of God's kingdom right here and right now? This is the time... Uh, that God has placed us. These are the boundaries in which God has given us. This is the context ordained by God for you and I now. So how are we to live in light of God's kingdom within God's purposes? Last week I also provided you with a summary definition of what the kingdom of God is. As we make our way through this revelation over the next uh, eight weeks now... uh, we're going to see how this definition will help us to gain a little bit better understanding of God's purpose through, throughout history, the history that we read about in the scriptures, to bring about his kingdom to its fullest and its consummated reality. Now, I don't, 
I'm not prideful enough to think that over the next nine weeks I can fully unpack it to the sense that you'll go, oh, yeah, that's it. I get it now. Thanks. Appreciate you explaining that to us because it's a growing process, a growing understanding to wrap our minds and, and be thrilled by the kingdom of God. But the definition that I gave to you is not my own. Uh, I actually t- have taken it from Graham Goldsworthy or actually from a man by the name of Von Roberts who took it from Graham Goldsworthy. And that definition is this, probably the most clear that I've ever seen. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place enjoying God's rule and his blessing. Now, if we approach the revelation of God in the pages of the Bible with the understanding that God is pursuing from the beginning the establishment of a comprehensive kingdom, his kingdom, that would stand forever, we can begin to make sense of many of the the individual stories and their individual contribution to God's ultimate purpose. Because the stories we read in Scripture are not just there for our entertainment. They're not just there for our moral betterment, though they may serve in that way. But they have a much grander purpose. And if we approach them in light of God's ultimate purpose to establish His kingdom forever, and we see how these stories contribute to that theme, that purpose, I think we better gain an understanding of the story of the gospel that we read through the pages of Scripture. And what this means is that while the Scripture that God has left for us, the the inerrant, infallible Word of God, while it is both historical and it is practical, we affirm those, for sure its primary purpose is theological. Theological simply means to reveal, in other words, to, to reveal God to us, to unveil who God is and, and what His unfolding purpose purposes are really all about. That is the ultimate aim and goal of the Scriptures, to show us our great God, our Creator, and to thrill us when we think upon Him and make us want to pursue passionately worshiping Him. God's Word doesn't necessarily tell us everything that we'd like to know. We've all come to realize that, right? We have a lot of questions. We go to the Word and And it's not spelled out for us. It doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know. But instead, God has provided in his word everything. And I mean everything necessary for for us today to fulfill his purpose in our lives in the context in which God has placed us. Now, we have to come to a place where we're satisfied with that. That God has given us everything that we need right here and now in his word for us to fully fulfill his purpose for us in the context in which he has placed us. There's a story of creation, which we're not going to read the entirety of the story. If you, I hope you have. If not, I encourage you to. We'll be looking through Genesis 1 and 2. But the story of creation is familiar to most of us, at least in some sense. We might not be able to quote it, or we might struggle saying what was day one and day two, but we're familiar with the story. Now, we will look to this introduction in Genesis 1 and 2, which is, serves as an introduction to Scripture this morning, not to gain merely a factual knowledge. Otherwise, our goal is not to walk away going, oh, now I know what happened on day one and day two and day three and day four. Those are good things. No, that's not our goal this morning to, to pass on mere factual knowledge about, about what God did in the past, however important that is. But instead, we're going to seek to hear this story in a broad sense in light of God's ultimate theological purpose. So that's what I, I want the takeaway, I guess, this morning is to, to read this story uh, from the theological perspective of, of God's ultimate purpose and what God is trying to say to us in the, the narrative of this story 
that, that pushes us toward his ultimate purpose, that better equips us to, to live in light of the kingdom. The primary purpose of the creation story is not to tell us how the world was created, but instead why. God could have given us more information, but he didn't. You can take that up with him. But the primary purpose is to tell us why. Why God did what he did. We often want the first two chapters of the Bible to say maybe a little bit more than they actually say in light of the text itself. And the result of that is the arguments over the age of the earth and the particular views about the days themselves that are mentioned in the text. Now, I'm not saying those are unimportant issues, but they're not primary in this, this text. We are, we're not going to debate those things today, whether or not the creation story uh, promotes a, a, a day-age view or a gap theory or, or those different arguments and debates. Not my point this morning. You can debate those afterwards. What I hope to do is to help us look beyond the modern debates and allow the text to reveal God's purpose for giving this particular narrative to us. Again, understanding that God could have said more, right? I mean, the questions we have, God can answer them. He could have. I mean, after all, he knew these, these would be debated. But he didn't give us some of the information that we would like for him to have given us to make things a little clearer, right? I mean, a few simple words could have cleared up a whole lot, right? But he didn't. He gave us what was necessary to to inform us, to reveal to us what he desired for us to understand. The creation story establishes the paradigm for for God's kingdom that that is then unpacked throughout the rest of Scripture. And it serves as the very pattern throughout the stories that we read beyond this. It gives us a glimpse into these three things this morning that we'll focus on. God's purpose in creation. What was the purpose of creation? Why? Why? What does this this text tell us about God's purpose? Then second, what is God's provision? What is it that that this narrative tells us about God's provision? And then lastly, God's protection in creation. So ultimately, we we will see that God created a particular people to be his own. He placed them in a perfect place in order to live for his glory under his rule while enjoying his infinite and amazing blessings. And so here in this story, we will see God's kingdom created. The story of creation teaches us about God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule and his blessing. So let me just read a portion that we're very familiar with, uh, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1. <clears throat> Then God said, let us make man in our image after the likeness, after our likeness and, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens 
And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green, green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And then there was evening. And then there was morning, the sixth day. Our Father, this morning we just want to take a few moments to glimpse into this great story that you have given us in creation. And while there are multiple opinions out there about how to understand creation and and, and different applications in in the world in which we live, I pray, Lord, that we might be able to step back and, and see the primary purpose of this text that you gave so many years ago to a people, your people, and this text has served from that time even unto this day to, to equip your people to understand who it is that you are and what it is that you are doing. So I pray this morning, Lord, you might give us just a, maybe a, a fresh glimpse into this great story of creation as we seek to understand how it informs us to live in light of your great kingdom this very day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a lot that I would like to do in this text as we do. But obviously, as you maybe already looked at your watches, we don't have a lot of time to do. So I'm going to do the very best that I can this morning to point you in the right direction. And again, encourage you, if you come back week after week, there'll be constant reflection back to these things. So uh, it may help you. So that means those of you that are over there, y'all have to get it all today. All right? So strap on your seatbelts and get ready. The story of creation that we read here in these first two chapters of the Bible, they must be read, first of all, in light of their context. You see, we engage in the beginning upon this story and start there. But as we read through beyond this story, you begin to understand there's there's a context. And that context ultimately is the Pentateuch, which is... The first five books of the Bible. This is the context in which we need to understand or read this creation story. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the five books that make up the books of Moses. We, by calling them the books of Moses, understand that these books were penned by Moses, or at least someone recording Moses' words. They are the record of the dealings of God with his people from the beginning, from the moment that we engage in Genesis 1, all the way up to the border of the promised land. This is where God's people are who are first hearing these words. They're on the border of the promised lands. And these words served and continue to serve as a history that gave content and meaning, first of all, to those who were about to enter the land that God had promised them for many years years past. This is, this is the ultimate, con- or the primary context, the original context. And while these events were preserved for us today, they have their original meaning in the context of the generation of Israelites who were about to cross over into that land that God had promised to them. This, we have to begin with that context. Now, it's in the context of this original audience, the Israelites on the brink of the promised land, that we must seek to read the initial words of the creation account rather than merely reading them in light of modern scientific debate. You see, Moses and his audience 
Moses speaking and the audience who were hearing, they, they weren't really all that concerned with whether the earth was a billion years old or only several thousand years old. This was not what was primarily on their minds. They, they were not debating in circles or small groups whether or not a day means 24 hours or not. Now, I know we have our opinions and, and they're important, but this is not their debate. This is not the point of this story in its original context. But even though that was not their questions or their concerns, we find that Moses writes these words in order to serve a purpose to those who were originally hearing them. They were not words written down some 4,000 years ago just for us that would make sense starting somewhere in the mid-17th century in the Age of Enlightenment when we began to understand the universe. They had purpose and meaning to those first people. And so we, we begin there. Not that it doesn't have application and significance in the modern era. But we don't begin there. We begin with the original audience. That's where we have to begin. We cannot expect to understand to its fullest what the story of creation is, is meant to teach us if we do not first understand, understand what it was meant to teach those to whom it was initially directed. To assume that God recorded the story of creation simply to settle a debate that would not rise for more than 4,000 years later is maybe a little naive and, and very likely somewhat prideful to think that this word was only has meaning to us. Therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what purpose would the story of God creating the world and all that is in it, and then creating man in his own image and placing him in a perfect garden, what, what purpose would that serve to a people who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and were about to enter a land that had been promised to them for many years? Try to put your mind, yourself in their shoes. Now, while we cannot, as I said, begin to touch on all the significance of the context, we will seek to, to raise a few of these truths encased in those three points that I gave you so that we might be better prepared to understand this idea of the kingdom of God. So first we look at God's purpose in creation. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. You see, when it comes down to it, and I realize it doesn't satisfy all the debates, but the ultimate question in the debate about what matters most about the origins of all that exists is answered in a single verse. You don't have to read past verse 1 for this to be answered. Now, it doesn't satisfy. I understand. But it is answered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's everything. Nothing excluded. Everything that exists, God created. And that's the point. To tell us that very simple, great reality. Simply stated, we are informed that everything which is, in, which is the intended meaning of that phrase, heavens and earth... Everything owes its existence to God and God alone. Now, again, my, my burden here is not to, uh, in an apologetic way, try to convince you of that. I'm beginning there. I'm taking the text at face value. Neither God nor Moses deemed it necessary to give detailed explanations about all the questions that could and would arise in our modern era concerning creation. Nevertheless, or neither does this verse, nor the rest of the narrative throughout chapter 1 and then chapter 2 from a different perspective, none of this fully satisfies the questions. God could have made it perfectly clear, as I've stated before, if, he, if the intended purpose 
of the narrative was to satisfy modern scientific debates. If that was the purpose, God could have settled it. But instead, God, by means of the hands of Moses, provides us with all the information necessary to convey what God intended to teach those wandering Israelites first on the eve of receiving the long-awaited promise and to teach those of us who are walking in our very own version of the wilderness, waiting for the arrival of that which has been promised to us. So there is application in the theological purpose. So then we arrive at the days of creation. Each of the days of creation teach us specifically about God's ultimate purpose. And again, the point is not for us to be able to define what he made on each day. Now, that's good. It's good information to know because it will help you. But that, again, that's not enough. That's not the purpose. So you can pass a test in Sunday school. Uh, but each of these days help us to understand what God's ultimate purpose was. And in chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 4, uh, we're given a detailed account about God's preparing an ideal environment for a particular or special people. This is the general sense. God preparing a particular or ideal environment for a particular and special people. And in verse 2, we are informed, after we're informed that God created everything, we're informed that the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, that phrase, the earth was without form and void, I would say is not the best translation. The Hebrew, tohu vavohu, it's just fun to say, tohu vavohu. The best understanding, or probably the best way to express that, that phrase is to say a barren wilderness that is uninhabitable. Now, the only other time that phrase is used is in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, when Jeremiah is talking about the promised land. After the exile, after God's people have been taken out, he says that the land was tohu vavohu. It was a barren wasteland or wilderness, uninhabitable. And so, as God's people are on the brink of the promised land, something they've been waiting for all these years, they hear this story about a land that was once uninhabitable. Now, you can take that wherever you want, but generally speaking, barren and unprepared for its ultimate goal, its ultimate purpose, which has its reality in God's final and greatest creation. So, in the first three days, what we read about, we're not going to read them specifically, what we read about is that God begins to set in order things so that this barren, uninhabitable land will cease to be barren and uninhabitable, but rather it will be prepared for God's ultimate purpose. Uh, The creation account serves as a means to get to where God was aiming at, preparing a place for a people. The first day marks the beginning of God's preparing this uninhabitable, barren wasteland so that it might be suitable for his greatest work of all, the human race, you and I. And God then sets in order the sky, the seas, and the land. That's what the first three days teach us. God sets in order the sky, the seas, and the land. Now, in the next three days, God continues his great work by filling these three places. He sets in order the sky, land, and seas, and then the next three days tell us about God filling them. So he prepared them for a purpose. He fills the sky, sun, moon, and stars, fills them with birds, He fills the seas with fish of all kinds, and he fills the land with, in particular, fruit trees and beasts of the field, creeping things. And after each preparatory act, the text informs us this, that God says it is good. 
Until we get to the end, he says, it is very good. But the question is, what is that statement implying to us? It is good. Well, we often want to read that as a, a definer of the worth of God's creation. And I'm not saying that it's not that, but I believe it's more than that. I believe that that statement is that God is making a statement about his purpose in creation, not the creation itself. He prepares the sky, the land, and the sea. He fills the sky, the land, and the sea. And they are good for what? Because of what God has done in his preparation or setting in order these things, they are good for his ultimate goal. They are now inhabitable. They are now suitable for the pinnacle of his work in creation. That is what he then declares in chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image. This barren wasteland, uninhabitable place, is now by God's great sovereign power prepared to sustain God's great work. The purpose of creation was the preparation of this special place, this ideal environment for God's special creation. And and then we go on to read in Genesis 2, 5 through the end of chapter 2, verse 25. They serve as a retelling of the very same story from a, a little bit of a different angle. With a little... It, tell, it, it serves as a retelling of the same story with a particular purpose on the place. You notice that when we get to chapter 2, we see a reiteration of some of what we read in chapter 1. But now it's, it's focused in on a particular place, even more defined as a garden in Eden. Right? And so now this further reveals this very purpose. That God's ultimate purpose in creation was preparing this suitable place for Adam and Eve who were God's initial special and particular people. So not only do we see God's purpose in creation, but we see God's provision in creation as well. The story of creation teaches us something special about our God who seeks to provide. Because in addition to God's work of providing an ideal existence for Adam and Eve, this, this perfect place, preparing this place, in addition to that, it teaches us something about the grandeur, the awesomeness of our Creator Himself. The story of creation reveals to us that our, our great God provides all, all that is necessary to live in complete satisfaction. Now, this, this reflects back on last week's uh, introduction. That last point, or second point, was that God's kingdom is our perfect provision. And this is exactly what we see in the creation story, that God perfectly and to the fullest extent provides everything for his special people necessary for them to fulfill their created design, to bring him glory, to live uh, for him, and to enjoy life with the fullest satisfaction that's even possible for any of us. You see, with specific note in the creation story, we're told that in addition to creating the ideal environment, when God begins to feel these 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 places, the sky, the land, the sea, he provides fruit trees in abundance, specifically for the man and the woman. In fact, as we read that, he tells them that the fruit trees are for them, but all the other green plants, therefore all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creeping thing. He provides fruit trees, fruit trees that would nourish them. And so if you carefully read this account, you'll find that the provision of the fruit trees was for particularly the nourishment of God's people, Adam and Eve, while everything else was for the other animals, the other created things. And God was careful to make specific provision for mankind. This story teaches us that. It shows us that God is particularly making provision for mankind. 
And in chapter 2, we find that the garden that God then plants in Eden was provided with plentiful fruit trees to sustain their lives. That it was provided with it was it was provided with rivers of water, uh, which parallel the seas of chapter one. They're provided to an addition to sustain life. In God's final act of provision, He provides the Helper for Adam. As we read this story, we see it. It's seeking to teach us uh, the great provision of God. Uh, rather than debating things, we see how God desires to. Prepare a place for his people and then provide everything. And, and so we find at the very pinnacle of that, that point that he goes back and then tells us underneath the story of God creating man. That when he created Adam, that he saw that Adam was alone. And so then his final act of great provision is to provide Adam with a helper. Of which Adam was um, extremely excited about, Right? He wakes up and he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman. And so the story begins to unpack for us God's great provision as we read it from that perspective. And understand, the initial audience, they're on the brink of the promise said, why did they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Because a few of them went to the land and they saw everything that God had provided, right? They said, there it is. But he didn't trust God's provision. They said, eh, we don't trust God in every way. They didn't trust that God would give that to them. But see, our God desires to provide everything for us necessary for us to live the life that he has purposed for us to live for his glory. The story of creation seeks to teach us that the original audits that God, to the original audits that God would indeed provide for his people everything that they could. Now, 40 years later, they're on the brink and they're reminded by Moses' words. This is what God has done and he's doing it again. He prepared a land for a particular people and he's done it again. He's preparing that land across that river for you, his particular people. And he's made every provision in that land for you to live for his glory. Why? Would we not trust him? Finally, we see in the story of creation, God's protection. He's prepared a particular place. That's his purpose. And ultimately for uh, his particular people. And, 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 and he promises in that preparing to provide everything necessary. But all of that, he, he teaches us that not only will he give us what is necessary, he teaches us that we can trust our great creator to protect us in life and we might add in death not only did God prepare that perfect place and his special people but he provides them with the necessary knowledge to live safe and secure in that place as God's people in, in the, this first existence that protection was fairly simple right I mean we it seems a whole lot harder for us at least we Justify it that way. But for Adam and Eve, that, that protection was provided in a very simple way, was it not? God provided all the fruit trees of the garden for them. You could eat of any of them, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you do, you will surely die. There's God's rule over them. Why? For their protection. He's made this perfect place. He's provided everything necessary. And he said, one more thing. I want you to enjoy this without end. 
So heed my words. I've taken care of everything. I've given everything you need. I've provided it. So you need not worry about anything. Stay away from that. I want to keep you from any detriment. So stay away from this one thing. And don't worry. Live life abundantly. Beyond what we could realize. This was what God was doing. God had prepared that perfect place in order that his people would not experience what they would come to understand to be death in all its sense, but instead to learn what life was really all about. And live they would, so long as they would trust the provision and the protection of their creator by obeying his word and living with him. The Bible tells us, and God commanded them. I mean, we see the, com- the commanding of them ru- living within this kingdom in a, in a great way. They are to subdue all of creation. They are the pinnacle of creation. But they are to do so underneath the rule and reign of God. And so long as they did that, what would happen? They would enjoy immensely his blessings. Might I remind you that the original audience who's, again, looking across that river to the promised land. Remember what they were told? This is the land that God has promised you. He's given it to you. It's yours. It was created for you. But when you enter it, be careful that you obey the word of God. So long as you obey the word of God, you will live enjoying God's blessing. But if you do not, if you decide to to turn your back on God and, and against his word, then know that God will drive you out of the land that he's prepared for you. God will drive you away from the provision in abundance that he has made for you. Now we know the story, right? In both instances. These stories parallel in a great way. In both instances we find that Adam and Eve, for whatever reason, we can't even begin to understand, but nevertheless we know that God's provision, for whatever reason, was not enough. And in, in, in disobedience to his direct word, word that was intended to protect them from any harm so that they could live, for whatever reason, They decided that God's provision was not enough and they wanted to, A, provide for themselves and B, make their own rules. That's ultimately the sin in the garden. It wasn't about an apple. (laughs) It was the means of them disobeying and not trusting, but wanting to provide for themselves. The people who are about to enter the land, we read the stories. What would happen? And we're going to see this in the weeks to come. What would happen to them? They would turn their backs on God. They would disobey. They would seek to do things their way. Make their own rules. Right? It began immediately. They didn't want king as their, God as their king. They wanted a king of their own choosing. They wanted to provide for themselves instead of allowing God to give perfect provision in his kingdom to his special particular people. And guess what happened to them? Just as Adam and Eve were driven away from God's perfect place, God's people later were driven outside of the land that God prepared for them. Adam and Eve, they ceased because of the fall, which we'll look at next week in more detail. They ceased to be God's people, living in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing, but rather they turned into rebels against God's perfect provision, living outside of the land and facing God's judgment. God's people later entered the land that God prepares for them, They disobey, they're driven out of the land. And rather than living in the land, enjoying God's blessing under God's rule, they face exile from the land and they face judgment. You kind of get the picture? 
because the reality stands even today. It, it, it's a little bit harder to grasp, and that's why we're going through the series, but to give you a glimpse into it, God's kingdom is present today. It's called his church. We are God's people. We are to live in God's place. The church. You say, we don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, you do. You can't separate the two. Uh, To be God's people is to dwell in God's place. For what purpose? To enjoy his reigning over us as our Lord beyond any reign of this world that we might enjoy God's blessing not only in this life but forever. Now, where is that specific particular place? Well, it's still there. Remember John 14? What did Jesus say? I'm going to prepare a place for you. Sounds a lot like the creation story. Sounds a lot like the crossing into the promised land. We are God's people. We have the present reality of the kingdom here and now. Not in its fullest sense. We live in that parentheses. What's called already, not yet. Jesus said, it's here. The kingdom's here. He's talking about the church. He gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. But he said, but hang on. Because this isn't it. Because one day, this kingdom will come. Physically, in in its truest reality, when I come again, I will bring the kingdom in its consummated, fullest sense. And you will experience life to the full as God reigns supreme over his kingdom, providing fully for his people forever. The only difference between it and Edom is there will no longer be the opportunity for sin to change it all. So, it begins to make sense. As we begin reading this great story of the gospel, with page one in the beginning, we begin to see exactly what it is that God is doing. And that has not changed. That is God's purpose today. And so in everything that we are, everything that we do as God's people, our drive, what's supposed to drive us, what's supposed to impassion us is not all the things in this world, not that they in themselves are wrong. But, and the fact that we have to tag that statement behind it every time shows us the problem with it. Our drive is not to be houses and cars and jobs and careers. Our drive is to be being God's people, living in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. It is our mandate as the church to reveal and manifest to the rest of the world the kingdom of God. We are the embassy of that kingdom in a foreign land. God's kingdom is here. It's his church. It's his people. The question then remains, how are we manifesting that kingdom? What does that kingdom look like to the world around us? Does it look like a kingdom where God's people dwell, enjoying their, their great God, their, their creator, their Lord, their sovereign, enjoying all that he provides for them, himself, and living for his glory? Or does the world look at us who say we are the church, the kingdom, and say, they're just like the rest of the world. They go to church on Sunday. Notice they go to church. They are not the church, but they go to church on Sunday. But they pursue everything else the world pursues for our own reasons. That's the effects of this fallen world on us. And so we pray, God, help us see the glory, the joy, the beauty 
of your kingdom come. And so we pray as we close this morning, as we did last week. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done. Your, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, this day, our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And God, we pray this because you've told us to. You've taught us how to pray. And I pray that... it. A prayer like that would not just be words that we have memorized because they're in the Bible, but words that become the very expression of our heart's desire to pursue your kingdom come. And Father, may we recognize that as your people, that if we do not pursue your kingdom come here and now, if we are not passionate about that, then how can we expect the world around us to see the glory of your great kingdom? Father, I pray this morning that you would challenge our hearts concerning the kingdom that is yours, that was present here and now, that is to reign over our lives even today, that is to determine our very next step, where we go, what we do, what we say, and how we do it. I pray, Lord, you would challenge our hearts that we would regularly have this upon our hearts and minds that we are your people because of your great grace. That you have given us a glorious place to live in in this in-between time called the church to await the glorious coming of your kingdom in its full. And so God, I pray that we would live in light of that. That we would go out these doors excited about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world that is passing away. Father, convict us where we need to be convicted about our worldliness because I can't speak for everyone else here, but I can say for myself that I regularly need to be convicted of my own worldliness, my own temporal desires to live in this world and to be of this world. I pray, Lord, you would drive us all to repentance every time we even come close to wanting to live that way. May you be glorified in these moments as we seek to respond to you through our our expression in song, and in any other way you may lead us to respond. May you be glorified. May you be exalted. May you be revealed to be the sovereign Lord that you are indeed already. This is the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.